I got a little too anxious to preach there and almost shoved them out of the way, but praise the Lord, they took their stand. Wonderful. Wonderful how the last three songs have fit in with our message today. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I so appreciate all of your prayers. Uh, thank you to Pastor Wesco for the opportunity to preach today. Uh, it is truly your prayers that support me. My situation is up and down all the time, and I never know what it's going to be like when I walk into this pulpit finally to preach. And I feel pretty good today, so we're looking forward to a good time in the Word of God. I'd like to look at this passage and just read it carefully and then ask the Lord to show us the way that he has for us through these words. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he hath he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken hereafter. But Christ as a son, as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Heavenly Father, we pray today as we open your word that you would speak to us through it. Open our eyes, take away our prejudices, our misunderstandings, our self-conceptions, and help us to look afresh at the word of God and understand what you have here in this text today that you want to apply to each one of our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, it's important that we understand who these Hebrew people were. They weren't a particular church in a particular place, but they were a genre of people, you might say, who were spread all over the world. Some in Hebrew Jewish communities and others scattered as just families and single individuals that were pretty much all alone. We actually had three groups that we can identify or we could think of as we think of these exhortations. And when we look at these, these texts in Hebrews, we need to kind of reorient our minds for a moment to try to understand the mindset of the Hebrew people that these uh, words were written to. They have application and ultimately are for us all. But in this particular time, they were written to reach out to a particular group of people who had a particular group of uh, problems in dealing with their spiritual lives when confronted with the gospel. Actually, looking backwards in my list here, you have the Hebrews who were Hebrews only culturally. They uh, were Hebrews by birth, historically, but they weren't committed to any faith. They were atheists. They were pantheists. 
They, they were liberals, uh, not people who really believed the Bible and the Word of God. And then we had the devout Old Testament Hebrews who were contemplating the gospel. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but a genuinely saved Old Testament believer who was committed to the faith, as it's described in the Old Testament, had to re-examine himself and get saved after the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Indeed, if he was truly saved before Christ came or during Christ's ministry, uh, I, I think it's very likely, if not almost demanded, that he will profess Christ because he's already saved, that the Spirit will work in him, and he'll receive Christ as he ought to. But there's a struggle there. It's quite a transition from being a believer in the Old Testament to becoming a follower of Christ as taught in the New Testament. Things that you held dear, things that were a part of your faith, of your practice, of your religious expression, of your viewpoint that you were committed to, and rightfully so, because that was the way you were supposed to be, have changed. And now there's a, a different focus not one that contradicts the things of the past, but one that fulfills the things of the past. But that was kind of hard to see with the emotional attachment that many Hebrew people had to the sacrificial system and the practice of faith as it existed in the Old Testament. And so they had a unique struggle as they contemplated the gospel being presented to them. And here was Jesus who had come and who had performed many miracles, many tremendous signs that identified him with the prophets of old. And yet he ended up being crucified and killed and gone from the scene now and not present visibly. And even in the last hours or minutes before his departure, when asked about the kingdom, the things that had to do with Israel's regeneration and, and becoming the leading nation of the world, uh, Jesus says, no, that's not for now. And they had to deal with that. They had to deal with that. And now a new era had begun. And then there were the, the spiritually young Hebrew believers who had followed Christ during his life, who watched during his death, burial, and resurrection, heard the apostles preach Christ and the gospel after his ascension, and received Christ as their personal Savior, and were associating and living with communities and groups who were Christian people, who were churches, local churches. And in the midst of all this, instead of all the glory and greatness of the healings of Christ, although they were somewhat replaced by healings that were done by the apostles, uh, and the departure of Christ, they, they were facing persecution. At the same time, they were reorienting themselves to what the Lord expected of them in terms of how they should worship and where their focus should be. Do you see how difficult that was? The word reorientation, I, I don't know what word in Scripture would, would fit that concept. I, I, the, the Bible talks about transformation and by the renewing of your mind. 
Uh, and maybe renewing of your mind fits the idea better. But I chose the word reorientation. They, 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 they had to reorient. The godly Jews had to reorient their thinking about how they worshipped, how they approached God, who they were and what their position was. And it was a difficult thing. And so the writer of Hebrews, in instructing all the church, was particularly sensitive to the Hebrew mind and the need for reorientation as the church grew and the gospel message went forth. So we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on verse 1. You know, sometimes we overlook some of these headings a little bit. But here's, a, here's an overview of what we're going to talk about here. When we profess Jesus Christ as our Savior, there are three areas in our lives that must go through reorientation. And this is especially a difficult thing for Hebrews. It's really true of all of us here. Here's, here's the universal application, if I can use that word spiritually. There are three areas in our lives that must go through a reorientation. Number one, my perception of myself, who I am. Number two, my understanding of Jesus Christ, his role in my life. And number three, my loyalty to others, who they are and how they influence me. Now, these questions, if you think about it, circle directly around this problem the Hebrews had of transferring from an Old Testament mentality to a New Testament mentality, particularly these concepts, because these concepts were changed, they were expanded a little bit. And so we keep this background as mind as we turn now to look at these three main points. First of all, my perception of myself. Who am I? Well, I am one of the holy brethren and a partaker of the heavenly calling. It's significant in chapter 3, verse 1, because for the first time in the book, the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, directly addresses his hearers, his listeners, his readers. If you look at chapter 1, chapter 2, you'll find no direct address to the people to whom he's writing. But in chapter 3, verse 1, he gets personal. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. We skim over these introductions sometimes, not thinking much about them to get on with the verse and the text, but there's some truth here that he is trying to communicate to these people uh, that, that they need to understand in order to understand who they are and what their identity is within this new dispensation of the church. They are holy brethren. They are partakers of the heavenly calling. Those are very significant phrases that describe members of the church in that early time, those early days of the church. So we're going to look at that a little bit. We're going to look at that. Um, I am, fine, it's our day, I am one of the holy brethren. Each one of you are one of the holy brethren to take this and apply it to us in our perspective today. In 1 Thessalonians 5.27, it says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. 
It's the only other place in Scripture where this terminology is used. It's rather unique to the book of Hebrews. Now, when we talk about brothers, we talk about individuals who have the same father, the same mother. They have a lot of things in common. And that's true of people who've received Christ who are in the church. We have a lot of things in common here. We share the same book or authority that all the rest of those who are Christians share. When we go places often, if you've traveled at all, you've probably had the experience of meeting someone and just within about two or three sentences, or maybe even after watching them across the room, you have this uh, clear sense that they know Jesus as a personal Savior. And that's a wonderful experience often. What is that? That's because they are brethren. And uh, there's a sense in which brethren are drawn together automatically by virtue of their relationship to Jesus Christ and how that draws them to him and makes them recognizable more to each other. But I want to look a little bit more closely at uh, brethren and how they behave. The Bible in other places talks about the brethren in, in the understanding of we are all brethren within the church, brothers and sisters within the church. We use that terminology so frequently. We've given a denomination the name brethren. That's not a bad title, really. And so we want to look at that phrase a little bit and see what the Bible says about brothers, brothers. The most significant and all-inclusive statement is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, which tells us, in essence, that brothers love each other. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. That's a pretty hard saying. I thought we knew we had passed from death into life because we loved the Lord. Well, certainly that's true. But the Bible teaches that if you love the Lord, you will love the brethren. You will love those around you, both in your local assembly and in the more extensive church throughout the world. You will have a love for all those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The, the word used here for love is often referenced in various texts of Scripture. Is, is the word agape, which speaks of a sacrificial love, a love that's willing to give up something for someone else, a love that is more interested in what's best for another individual than what is easiest or most convenient or maybe something that can be done to satisfy the moment, at least outwardly. It's a, a deep, committed, sacrificial kind of love for one another. Uh, again, because of our culture in this country, we are so comfortable, we have so many of our needs met, we feel so secure that I don't think we comprehend this love as people did in what we would call today third world countries, where there's dangers, insecurities, uh, potential war, potential persecution. This was very important. And God says they will love each other. They will love each other to the interest of the person they love. But it also uses the term for brotherly love, phileo. Here are some characteristics of brotherly love in that context, 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, speaking to the church here, so he's speaking to brethren, 
Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Love as brethren. Have a love for each other that's like a love that a natural born brothers would have for each other. It's a love that is filled with compassion. Compassion is the desire to help someone in their weak moments, in their down times, to identify, to show compassion in the sense of doing for them what they may need in order to be encouraged or help or comforted, having compassion on them. It says we should love as brethren, love as brothers. It says we should be pitiful. That word in our English language today doesn't convey quite the same thought that it did in those old days of the King James when it was translated. But a, a word that uh, might explain it a little bit closer to what we think of today is tender-hearted. Pitiful kind has a, in our society today a little bit of a negative aurora about it. But the, so the idea is being tender-hearted, being pitiful, relating to the problems and difficulties of other people. Physical sickness, failures in their lives to attain goals or to be successful or just in having victory over sin. Be tender-hearted, be pitiful, and be courteous. You know, there's real importance in being courteous. When you meet somebody in the hallway on Sunday morning... People come in with all sorts of dispositions and problems and, and sometimes quite relieved and quite happy. And uh, how you greet them, the look on your face, the words that you say, can make their day or maybe break their day, depending what end of the spectrum they're at. A cur courteous, being courteous is important because we can be so easily misunderstood if we don't make a special effort to be courteous, to show kindness toward our brothers and sisters. And then it says in 1 Peter 1.22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. With a pure heart fervently. Not with some false motive, but with a genuine concern for the individual. These are very important things. In fact, as I thought about this, this is a tremendously relevant discussion for our coming out of the COVID situation in our country and church life. The, the situation of the past year or so has tested us in some of these areas. And uh, I praise the Lord that you're all back here and we're thankful for that and we're moving on. But it required the application of some of these principles that are laid down here that we, sh that we act like and be the holy brethren that we're called upon to be. It says in 1 Peter 1.22, unfeigned love of the brethren, a pure heart. And then it is a sacrificial love. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 
when we see others in our congregation or in the Christian community or anywhere in the world as we reach out through mission fields and become aware of it, uh, we're not born for adversity in the sense of being born to fight. We're born for adversity in the sense that we're there to help another brother who is struggling, who's having a problem. That's why we have a, an emergency fund and reserve in our missions program to help our missionaries. And sometimes we've had the same kind of thing where uh, an individual on the mission field has an emergency. It needs funds to minister to the people. And we want to make sure we have the funds available to be able to do that. To be able to act sacrificially. To love at all times. And to be there when our fellow brothers in a point of adversity. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's a kind of amazing thing. You don't hear much discussion about today. I, I, I don't know what the status of these organizations are. But there are organizations, especially in the last century, that became very strong and popular and powerful. Lodges of sorts. Where people went through ceremonies and rituals and made commitments. In one such lodge, there was a pledge. <clears throat> As you advanced up through the lodge that you would defend a brother, that's the term they used too, that you would defend a brother no matter what, to the death, if he was a brother with you in the lodge. And by virtue of the statement and the and presentation of that uh, commitment in that lodge and organization, even if it violated your conscience, even if it violated Christian ethics, uh, you were called upon to give your life, or do everything you could to rescue your brother. That's the kind of commitment that we should have toward one another. That's why the church took such a strong stand against lodges and organizations like that, because they required you to make a pledge of commitment to your brother in the lodge that was greater than the pledge of commitment you have by virtue of biblical instruction to your brother in the church. But the, the Bible is telling us when it's necessary, you need to be willing to make the supreme sacrifice for your brother. This was illustrated in the Jewish community, not so much the Christian community, but in World War II. Those who uh, hid and were the line of transport for Jews out of Germany. Of course, that's Jews, not Christians. But that kind of commitment, that kind of willingness to give their lives for these Jews to escape the country is the kind of commitment that's being talked about here. That's, that's a pretty big commitment. It is a relationship that I establish and carry out while in pursuit of being holy. Of course, God says in his word, be ye holy, for I am holy. It's not something that you compromise your ethics for or you do carelessly. No, you pursue God, First Peter 1.15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Second Peter 3.11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? We get our perspective wrong sometimes on what we're willing to sacrifice for. And 
We need to understand the need to be holy. Instead of being so committed to the material aspects, the cultural, the organizational aspects of this world, that will give up holiness for those things which, were, which are going to soon be burned up and taken away. When you become a Christian, you become one of the holy brethren. There are people out there today who are struggling, struggling with their self-identity. Who am I? Where do I belong? What should I do? When you become a Christian, you find in the church your holy brethren. That is where your identity is. Both for you as a holy brother, brother and for the congregation as they receive you as a holy brother. It's, it's part of who you now are. You're not alone. You're, you're not alone. You're not alone, first of all, because you know Christ and, of course, God is with you. But that's intangible. The local assembly of believers meeting together is a tangible ministry set up and designed by the Lord where we meet together as brethren, a physical, actual, experiential event so that we can minister to one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, as Hebrews says later, and so much and more as you see the day approaching. So very important. And don't be tempted by the events of the past couple of years to think that to become a live-streaming Christian is sufficient. Now, it's wonderful if you're unable to get out. I mean, that's a tremendous blessing to some people who have no choice in that matter, some of you people who are live-streaming. But I, I've heard on at least one or two occasions somebody say, well, I've become a live-stream Christian. No, there's no live-stream Christians that are legitimate. We need the fellowship. We need the face-to-face. -face. We need the eye-to-eye. -eye. We need to know each other to be holy brethren in our behavior to each other and understand the group which, which, with which we identify. Secondly, we are partakers of the heavenly calling. When we think of the word partakers, we think of participation in whatever it is, like participation in the heavenly calling. But the word partaker here has really more emphasis on being part of a group that has a heavenly calling than, than on the vertical relationship itself, although here it is a vertical relationship. The, the first holy brethren, that's a horizontal relationship, okay, between fellow believers. Now, being partaker of the heavenly calling is a vertical relationship. We're involved with something that's happening in heaven and in our lives as Christian believers. It's, it's, it's not just heavenly, though. It's heavenly in the sense that we become partners with others, just like in Luke, uh, it's referred to as the men who were fishing together. It says, and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. That's when they got the load of fishes that the Lord gave them. Same word. But they are partners in a heavenly calling. Uh, it's a calling to heaven. It's a calling from heaven. Sometimes, as we live the Christian life, we feel all alone. We talk here, we're talking here about partakers of the heavenly calling. As partakers, we feel all alone. And 
uh, just a word about that. We need to think about that a little bit in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, verses 14 and 15. We find an example in the Old Testament to help us illustrate the concept here of being partakers with the sense of this word partaker in uh, heavenly calling. It's, a, it's an account of the Old Testament prophet when he got discouraged because it seemed like he was the only one left. 1 Kings 19 says, verse 14, And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And then jumping down a couple of verses, God says to him, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. The Bible teaches us that we as believers are a remnant. Uh, we are the minority who serve the Lord and are faithful in our understanding and belief in Scripture. And, and that's a true statement. But don't forget, sometimes when we feel like we're, if you feel like our church or our little denomination, our little group is the only one left, you're headed down the wrong road. That's the way he felt. He felt, I'm the only one left. No, we're partakers of the heavenly calling. There's more than one. I was thrilled and amazed and excited back uh, in the early part of the century. <laughs> that makes me old, doesn't it? In the early 2000s. Our family had the family ministry, and we went to different churches ministering. And uh, we go into churches that were of like faith and doctrine, but we found out that they had a fellowship of pastors or churches that was totally different than the one that we moved in. And there was this little group here and that little group there and that little group there, and they, they weren't antagonistic against each other necessarily or anything like that, although some may have been. But the point I'm making is uh, it, it wasn't like there was just one cell that was left. When you started getting out and getting up above and looking down at the big picture, there were lots of little groups that made up the remnant. So as we look to the Lord and recognize that we are a remnant, we, we are a minority in the culture in which we live, we need to keep in mind that even though we may not be aware of it, there are many others out there who are likewise serving the Lord. So what's that mean? Well, that means when I'm feeling all alone and I go to the Lord in my loneliness and my sense of isolation and pray to him, that even though I don't know them and I don't see them, and I'm not acquainted with them, there are others out there just like me who are seeking the Lord and searching to do his will and keep a balance in all of that. We are partakers of the heavenly calling, participating in the heavenly calling, but yet a relationship between ourselves. The heavenly calling can be taken in a couple of different ways. Of the heavenly calling can be a calling to heaven, which is the destination. We are called to heaven. We're going to go to heaven, and that's per perfectly legitimate to understand it. Or a heavenly calling can also be understood as that's our purpose. Our purpose is to serve a heavenly cause. 
and either way, it would be true. But either way, it is very personal. Again, looking at it from the perspective of the Hebrew or even an unsaved person in the world today, they find in the church, you should find in the church, a fellowship of brethren who give you a sense of identity, who love you and will care for you and will show you God's love in a tangible way. But at the same time, you come to realize that you have a relationship with the spiritual world which is not so tangible. That you have a relationship in the spiritual world that gives you purpose, identity in God. And you're called upon with a heavenly purpose to serve the Lord. One of the amazing differences, and people don't think about this very often, between Israel and the church. In the nation of Israel, you were born a Jew. And so when you were born a Jew, you were automatically a part of the Jewish congregation, the Hebrew congregation. In the New Testament, that isn't the way it works. You're not a believer because you're born. You're not born to be a member of the church. You have to be saved. So even though there's individuals in the church body, even members of churches that aren't saved, in principle and by design, and the goal and the effort is that everybody within the church body are believers. And if they're not and they're not acting like believers, then the scriptures say you're to put them out. But in the Old Testament... Legitimate Israelites were unbelievers. And sometimes they were put out because of their behavior too. But the point is here, today, God is working very personally with individuals. Not only do you have a sense of identity with the brethren in the church, but you have a sense of identity of a heavenly calling that was to you personally. God convicting and reaching out to you personally. There's an emphasis on a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A heavenly calling. It's described this way. It is a calling from heaven and it is a calling to heaven. It is a voice which comes from God and calls us to God. It is a call which demands concentrated attention because of both its origin and its destination, its source and its purpose. A man cannot afford to give a disinterested glance to an invitation to God from God. You have now become acquainted with the central figure of the universe. Hence the song the men sang this morning. Praise you, your living, living God. So as we think of this, we realize that as a believer, we have an identity in the local church with other believers, and we have a very significant, very well-defined, very real calling and ministry to one another. I praise the Lord that I've seen that in this church, but I ask the Lord that it continue to manifest itself in this church that our love for one another is sacrificial and unfeigned, compassionate, tender-hearted. That, that is a characteristic of people in a New Testament church, as holy brethren. And it is also true that they have a sense of calling from God that is personal and unique for each life. They are made a part of the body of Christ, 
They have un- each one of you have unique gifting. Each one of you have irreplaceable role in the body of Christ. Uh, secondly, my understanding of Jesus Christ. See, now these Hebrews now who are all alone out there, what we've just said about the Christian experience is very important to their conversion. They're moving further in the Christian faith. That kind of a relationship. And now, my understanding of Jesus Christ. First of all, there was my understanding of who I am. I'm one of the holy brethren, one of the heavenly called as a Christian believer, which gives me a sense of identity horizontally with other believers and vertically with God. Now, my understanding of Jesus Christ, he is an apostle sent to me and is my high priest. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now, the consider there is a very intense word. First of all, it's an imperative in the Greek, and uh, it's very intense. It requires intense action. It is a, a, a close look at the Lord in order to understand who he is and what his relationship is to us. This, this quote might help you to understand. In Luke chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus uses the same word when he says, consider the ravens. He does not merely mean look at the ravens. He means look at the ravens and understand and learn the lesson that God is seeking to teach you through them. If we are ever to learn Christian truth, a lackluster, disinterested, detached glance is never enough. There must be a concentrated gaze in which we gird up the loins of the mind in a determined effort to see its meaning for us. Did you listen to that last part? If we are ever to learn Christian truth, a lackluster, disinterested, detached glance is never enough. There must be a concentrated gaze in which we gird up the loins of the mind in a determined effort to see its meaning for us. Being a, being a brother or heavenly calling with Christ as your apostle and high priest calls for us to look into his role in our lives closely and intensely. I marvel at this. Here's a, here's a little bit of a side note. Maybe it's a little bit of a rabbit trail. Uh, I really had a struggle putting some of these quotes in my notes. I pass out. A lot of, most preachers don't pass out these notes. They do the same thing I do, but they don't pass out the notes. But if you look at these notes, you'll see a name cropping up several places, the name Barclay. Um, I had a real struggle giving you notes with the name Barclay in them. I had a seminary professor one time that said, you know... I hope in your library that you have a cross-section of literature that you work with as a pastor in developing your ministry because there are some people who are of a different persuasion or maybe are even liberals who because of their academic honesty uh, in desiring to search out the truth sometimes express and find the truth better than the individual who's saved but who is careless in his Bible study or who does not pursue the Lord in trying to truly understand what the text says. 
uh, I was given a little book. Stephen was given the theological library of Dr. Chang, his, his wife's grandfather who passed away. You know about that. And uh, I was preaching in Hebrew, so he brought me a little book, a little, little paperback book, very old, all yellow. have to be real careful with it. The pages would come out of it by William Barclay. And uh, it was a commentary in the book of Hebrews. And I said, Barclay, Barclay, Barclay. You know, for some reason I have good feelings about him and I have bad feelings about him. And I said, I'm going to figure out why that is. Who is he? Who is this guy? Because obviously I was impressed with some of the things he said. This is, this is, a, beautiful, this is a beautiful statement. If we are ever to learn Christian truth, a lackluster, disinterested, Detached glance is never enough. There must be a concentrated gaze in which we gird up the loins of the mind and a determined effort to see its meaning for us. What a pile-up of intensity. What a pile-up of intensity made by William Barclay. Well, this is a little extra lesson. Let me tell you about William Barclay. He was born on the 5th of December, 1907, in Wick, Scotland. He died the 24th of January, 1978, in Glasgow, Scotland. He was a Scottish author, radio, and television presenter of the Church of Scotland, a minister and a professor of divinity and biblical criticism at the University of Glasgow. He wrote a popular set of Bible commentaries uh, on the New Testament that sold 1.5 million copies. Amazing. Well, you go down the page a little bit. Religious views. Barclay described himself as theologically as a liberal evangelical. He believed in universal salvation. He believed in pacifism. He believed in evolution. He questioned the inspiration of the Bible and the substitutionary blood atonement. atonement. <gasps> I said... After I got to meditating on my notes when I was all done with my sermon, I said, boy, how many of you knew who, who Barclay was before I said anything about it? Just a couple of you, yeah. There happened to be students who had some training. I didn't want you to walk out of here with a misunderstanding. But here's an illustration. I, I often and totally, I, one of the puzzles to me is how some of the secular musical artists can sing some of the greatest hymns that we all love so beautifully and not know the Savior. How can that be? It's an enigma. Oh, actually, it, it shames us somewhat. Not that, but, but here's an individual. I mean, his, his writing emanates an understanding of what is being said here but it's not, it's not clearly from a season. I don't know what happened the rest of his life. Anyway, I, I say that to you to say, be careful. But he, he also, by the way, being from Scotland, was what? We talk about it all the time around here. Was he premillennial? No, what was he? He was reformed. Nasty word. Sometimes reformed people have some things to say they're interested to us. You have to be careful your maturity and study in the Word of God that you can discern some of these things and be careful. But this statement that he used, listen, folks, you're not going to get what you need if you only come to church on Sunday and never open your Bible any other time. 
if you don't give us some intense effort, if you don't get into it and try to fit it together and see what it says to everybody but to you particularly, if you don't give it some intensity, you will never grow in your Christian life. And you go out into the world and be challenged by, excuse me, sorry about that, Edith. <laughs> I guess that's Noel. <laughs> uh, you'll go out and be challenged by the world and you'll melt. You'll have no idea how to respond to the critic. It takes some intensity. Consider the apostle and high priest of our faith. Our profession is in him. Our agreement, our statement of faith is in professing him as high priest and as our savior, as apostle. Well, I'm running close on time here, so uh, let me, I, I can communicate to you what I want to here. The concept of an apostle is very significant. There is a story which William Barclay records in his commentary, which has become kind of a background story that Everybody knows it's a Christian. At least everybody that's been trained in Christian theology has probably been exposed to this passage, which illustrates what an apostle is. So I'd like to read this historical description to demonstrate to you how significant it is that Jesus is identified as an apostle, an illustration from secular history. On one occasion, the king of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, invaded Egypt Rome desired to stop him. Rome sent an envoy called Propilius to tell Antiochus to abandon his projected invasion. Propilius caught up with him on the border of Egypt. Antiochus and Propilius talked of this and that, for they had known each other in Rome. Propilius had not the vestige of an army with him, not even a guard, no force at all. Finally, Antiochus asked him why he had come. Quietly, Papilius told him that he had come to tell him that Rome wished him to abandon the evasion and go home. I will consider it, said Antiochus. Papilius smiled a little grimly. He took his staff and drew a circle in the earth around Antiochus. Consider it, he said. And come to your decision before you leave that circle. Those tough, tough words. Antiochus thought for a few seconds and then he said, Very well, then I will go home. Papilius himself had not the slightest force available, but behind him was all the power of Rome. The ambassador was clothed with all the authority of the empire from which he came. So Jesus came from God, clothed with all the power of God. All God's grace and mercy and love and power were in his ambassador, his apostolos, Jesus Christ. It is significant that he is the one we profess to as an apostle. As you come as a, as a Hebrew who's questioning whether he should focus on Christ or focus on Moses, There's a line drawn around him. Commit yourself to Christ. This day or the powers of heaven will stand against you. Well, he is also our high priest. He is the one 
who intercedes for us in heaven. I'm going to jump over that so I can move my third point and conclude here. So there is, first of all, the horizontal relationship and vertical relationship of being of the brethren, of being heavenly called. There is, secondly, the one we are to focus on, which is Christ, who is the apostle and high priest of our faith, a person we dare not neglect, that we must take seriously, that we must understand from the word of God. Seek out, consider, know him well. And finally, we come to the last point. My loyalty to others in my life, even loyalties to the greatest of individuals in my life, must be replaced by loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ. Now that's a statement of application to the text here in Hebrews chapter 3. Because the problem that these Hebrews faced was, in order to give myself totally to Christ, I have to give up my commitment to Moses. Now you say, that's crazy. I mean, it's so obvious. But you don't understand. In the mind of a Hebrew, Moses was the greatest man that ever lived. The man closest to God of any person ever in the existence of the world. They put him on a pedestal. It's always Moses and the prophets. In fact, sometimes instead of talking about the law, they talk about Moses. They substitute Moses for the law. But you know what? It's not just men and people that did that. God did that. God elevated Moses and his purposes in the Old Testament to be that high and, and lifted up. I, I want to show you these verses here that are mentioned in your outline. I, I didn't print them all out. Listen to this. Moses had special privileges with God. It says, and this is the quote that the text is referring to when it says he was faithful in all mine house. And he said, hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses, not so, who is faithful in all mine house, with him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches, and in the similitudes of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then are ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Moses spoke face to face with God. In Exodus chapter 33, verses 9 to 11, it talks about him speaking face to face. It says in verse 11, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. Can you imagine that? This is the God who had said, If anyone should look upon him, they should die. God's glory was reflected in Moses' face. Remember, he came down from the mountain. God showed Moses his glory in part. He asked to see his glory. Oh, what a bold request. And God put him in the cleft of the rock, hence the song we have, and allowed him to see his glory as he passed by his, his back. Nobody else ever got that privilege. There's no prophet like him. It says in Deuteronomy, and there rose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses was a type of Christ. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, Moses, 
and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Moses was presented opposite Christ. John 1.17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. If there's a figure to be elevated in the Old Testament, Moses compared to Jesus Christ in the New Testament as if they were on an equal level. This is the, the kind of mindset of a, of a Hebrew individual. Moses uh, was revered by those who rejected Christ. Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We're not Jesus' disciples. We are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. They put Moses on the same level as Christ. He appeared with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration when the rich man was asked uh, to send back someone from the dead to tell his brothers about the gospel. He was told that they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded they see one raised from the dead. This is, this is another man. He died alone with God. He had a private funeral ceremony conducted by God and a private burial done by God himself. It tells us in Deuteronomy that, and he, God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulcher into this day. God buried him personally. Evidently, there was a big, big, big struggle because in Jude 9, and this is all we're told about this, it says, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. What's that all about? We don't really know exactly what that's all about. And finally, in a Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, verses 5 and 6, the witnesses, the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, one of them is very, very likely Moses. He was so close to God, no one could be closer, but wait, Jesus Christ is. So here's this Hebrew all through his life, Moses is the center of attention. Moses is directing attention to God, but Moses is the physical, the physical focus of attention. And now Moses is put in subjection to Christ. The, in Hebrews here, the first part is the, certainly the prophets. Christ is superior to the prophets. And then Christ is superior to the angels. And then Christ is superior to Moses. We would think that's the wrong order. But no, as you go through those three, it builds and builds and builds, and Moses is the last one and the big one that has to be dealt with as these Hebrews switch over from their Old Testament thinking to their New Testament thinking. Jesus Christ has to become the central figure of their thinking and of their lives. That's quite a reorientation. That's quite a reorientation. And the same is true for us. Jesus Christ has to become the central focus of our lives. We need to identify with the brethren in the body of Christ. We need to give attention to Jesus Christ as the apostle and high priest of our faith. And we need to consider that no one can be greater than Christ in our lives. What's that mean to how we apply this to us today? We know some people have put a pastor higher than Christ. They admire him so, they follow him so, they're so impressed by a particular pastor, Christian leader, 
then if he falls, their whole world comes apart. No, your world shouldn't come apart. Pastors, teachers, we're, we're frail men. Things happen. Your trust isn't in a leader in the church or a pastor. Your trust must be in Christ. It must be put to Christ. Sometimes it's a ministry. I know a ministry a few years ago that was helpful in many ways. But some people got so focused on the ministry that they stopped being involved like they should have been in their local church. And their lives and families sometimes fell apart because they weren't functioning the way God designed it. A godly friend, one that understands you so well that you put all your confidence in their counsel, their advice, without consulting the advice and counsel of the word of the Lord. Someone you spend a lot of time with. I know a family have a couple of daughters who were taking care of some widow ladies. What harm is there in that? Well, these little ladies were feeding them counsel that was undermining their Christian faith. And parents had no idea of it. Christ must be sent. Popular author. Uh, all kinds of people with the mass media today that are following a particular speaker, a particular author, tremendously influenced by his book. Oh, he doesn't publish a book, but they don't get it and read it. There are friends, peers, sometimes have control over us and we don't even realize it. There's a particular teacher or professor, or maybe it's even yourself, when you do what you know you shouldn't do. It can be our culture. The, uh, we have a book at home on the bookshelf called Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave. How much have those rulers' philosophies affected you? They're still very alive and well. I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes as we contemplate ourselves this morning in light of this chapter 3. How is your life? Have you identified with the description of Scripture of being a holy brother or sister, of being heavenly called? Are you considering, considering the apostle and high priest of your profession? And who is the greatest individual in your thinking? Is it Christ? Father in heaven, help us to examine ourselves today in light of these truths of Scripture, Lord, we need to reorient our thinking. Perhaps it's said better. We need to be transformed in the renewing of our mind in these areas. Who we are, our relationship to who God is, and who we put first in our lives. Help us to do that as we Sing this closing hymn of invitation together. In Jesus' name, amen.